0: I greet you. I'm so glad you're here on the great day of Pentecost. I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles or on your devices and your bulletins. You also find it printed. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We're going to see here what happens when a little church prays together. Let me ask you Do you believe that significant, serious, sizable, Things can materialize when you are on your knees in prayer. Have we truly taken in the potency of corporate prayer as a church? Have we appropriated the power of people praying as one? may help if I give a more recent example before we travel back in time to ancient Bible days. In the 1970s, the World Council of Churches sent a delegation behind the Iron Curtain. Some of us remember well the Cold War. These delegates were sent to investigate and to report on the state of the church under a hostile communist atheistic regime. William Willimon, he tells about how one of these delegates reported came back to him, returned, and reported to him how it was so bad off that all that was left with tiny small gatherings in homes and a few other places. He said, and I quote, the church is just a bunch of little old ladies praying, a bunch of perfume makers. Let's fast forward a little bit to the 90s. Who here was stunned to watch communism collapse? You remember the statues of Lenin and Stalin being toppled, the ones that were in the public squares in Eastern Europe? Remember the Berlin Wall being turned to rubble? David Hasselhoff having a concert on top? Evil power was essentially pulverized. In his book, Your God is Too Safe, Mark Buchanan wrote this in response to that earlier report given to Willemann in the 70s. He said, Beware little old ladies praying. Secretly, they are revolutionaries who make Bolsheviks look like kindergartners. They comprise a veritable bomb-making factory. I suggest we join with those little old ladies before we er- open up this word of power. Let's pray. Almighty God, we want to just stop and praise and adore you as our creator. We marvel at the mystery that those holy angels are on tiptoes to see how through our Redeemer Jesus we have been made partakers of the divine nature. We now offer up our prayers through him knowing that they are a sweet incense before you. And we do want to thank you for pouring out your spirit and that he is present enabling us to worship you rightly. And we ask right now that our eyes might be opened like you once did Gehazi, that we might see marvelous things. Our time is short, Father. Our need is so great. What we do not know teach us what we have not give us, what we are not make us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from Acts chapter 12. About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there is no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Many of you told me that you were very encouraged by Pastor Ted on our mission Sunday a week ago, so I thought it fitting on Pentecost Sunday to spend our time today in Acts to consider how the church triumphs in its mission through prayer, through prayer. I want to first acknowledge a pastor who greatly helped me to understand our need to pray. His name is Pastor Harry Reeder. He died in a car accident and was just laid to rest last Wednesday. He was a wonderful pastor I knew well. He transferred his membership from the church militant the church triumphant and pastor reader I say it that way because he used military language to describe the church and its mission today and he said that prayer is our primary weapon in the conflict that we face back in January Mike and I actually attended his annual lampstand conference and pastor reader opened up the book of acts to show it how the word of God alone won't get it done won't get it done it won't accomplish the mission of bringing the gospel to the world he pointed out how acts one begins with a small group gathered for a prayer meeting and after 10 days of persistent prayer what happens in acts two the holy spirit is poured out on pentecost peter then preaches the word and three thousand souls instantly converted now i've read acts two lots of times it's a pretty good sermon. Decent sermon. I'd like to think out of the hundreds of sermons i preach, I've preached at least one that good. I know it's inspired. But i am tell you what. It's a good sermon, but it's not a 3,000 soul converting sermon. Acts shows us that the Word, when it comes with power, the power of the Spirit, it changes things. Acts shows how the early church was devoted to prayer and the Word. Over and over, this is repeated. And by the time you get to our text in Acts 12, the gospel is now going gangbusters. Folks everywhere are coming to Jesus. They're being set free from sin and shame, and their lives are being changed. How many of us long to see this in our day? When so many in our culture are lost, who are in crisis? Friends, we need an Acts 12 reminder this morning, because the prayer meeting in the American church has all but died. According to a recent Barna poll, 94% of Christians who have prayed in the last three months do so entirely by themselves. Barna says, prayer is by far the most common spiritual practice among Americans, but people pray mostly alone. It is a solitary activity defined primarily by the immediate needs and concerns of the individual. Corporate prayer and corporate needs are less compelling drivers in people's prayer lives friends, our community is dying and our church is declining because we are not houses of prayer. And I think it came largely because we didn't think we needed to wrestle with God in prayer to change things. Wealthy American Christians, we have so many resources to get so much done without prayer. Uh, That's no longer true. The church is declining in our post-COVID day and the culture is growing increasingly hostile in our post-Christian day. Barna went on to ask a couple of provocative questions I've been pondering this week. Listen, they ask, what would it look like to begin to broaden the scope of those prayer lives? To consider the power of corporate prayer when more than one are gathered in God's name? What would it look like? Welcome to Acts 12. Welcome to Acts 12. Luke actually provides us a peek behind the spiritual curtain to show us what happens when earthly power squares off against earnest prayer. Earthly power versus earnest prayer. And Acts 12 is set strategically here to help us see the bigger picture. For your homework, here's your homework. Read what comes before and after Acts 12. In Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30, you actually have the first Christian church plant in Antioch which was, by the way, first century sin city, a surprising place for a church to rise. It's like Vegas. And then Acts 13 is the continuation of that story as Antioch is now ready to plant another daughter church. Right here, Luke sandwiches Acts 12. Scholars, they scratch their heads about this. It's a strange interruption of the annax story. Why do you sandwich this right in the middle In fact, when Luke inserts this story about Herod, angel strikes, and Peter in jail, it chronologically doesn't even fit. What's Luke up to? Friends, at the point in Acts where readers are now seeing clearly the unstoppable advance of God's kingdom, Luke wants to encourage us how the church wins when the church prays earnestly as one at the beginning of the gospel now going out to the gentiles and churches now being planted this is going to be what paul does going forward luke peels back the curtain so we can see the bigger picture the spiritual reality and why we need to pray because this is a spiritual battle a spiritual battle chris hume he comments well listen we may be surprised by many things when we reach heaven I dare not contend with J.C. Ryle, who said that the thing that will surprise us most is how much more we ought to have loved Christ while on earth. But I think that there is another reality which will also greatly surprise us when we reach heaven, and that is this, the depths of the spiritual battle that was waged for the souls of men and women during our lifetime. I think we will be surprised to realize the skirmishes and clashes that have occurred in the spiritual realm, and of which we perhaps unknowingly participated in via prayer. That's the first thing he says. Discipleship, evangelism, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, a word of encouragement, a word of rebuke, sharing a gospel tract, speaking up for the weak, not giving in to sin. I think when we reach heaven, we will be like the servant of Elisha who had his eyes open to see the fiery angelic army encamped around Dotham. That's a good quote. Luke inserts this story right in the middle of the Antioch 1 about angels and prayers so that we will see that we're in a spiritual battle that in fact is being played out on earth and mankind is the battlefield. Mankind is the battlefield. The scene is set. In verses 1 to 5, you have King Herod Agrippa, an egomaniac with enormous power, And he literally, in the Greek, stretches out his hand to do evil on the little church of believers. And in response, this little church of believers stretches out their hands in earnest prayer. Imagine being a believer, facing a government approved, culturally endorsed purge. How in the world can a tiny little group proclaiming a different king possibly survive? It looks pretty lopsided but the church is praying earnestly. Let me ask you, do we pray earnestly? Do we even know what that looks like? Luke actually uses the same word to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating blood. As the Father begins to press the wrath, the cup of wrath into Jesus' hands, he's praying earnestly, Father, take this from me. Earnest prayer, that's what it looks like. I actually saw it recently in the hospital. I was rounding in critical care. and I saw a weeping woman holding a patient's hand. The situation obviously wasn't good. I introduced myself and she begged me to pray. And as I did, she was there with me praying earnestly. It's a humbling thing. Desperate for God to save him. Actually, that's where I learned how to pray. In an Indianapolis hospital about six years ago. I remember sitting in the waiting room with a pile of books. I was preparing, ironically, a sermon series on prayer. And I got a call to go back to see my wife, who was about to donate a kidney. And let me note, my wife has never had a surgery in her life. It dawned on me as I was signing a document saying that I wouldn't sue the hospital if my wife died, that I was completely helpless at this moment. And I saw the fear in her eyes. And I got down on my knees and I prayed one of the most heartfelt prayers I've ever prayed in my entire life. And I remember walking back to the waiting room thinking, how am I going to wrap my mind while getting on my sermon series? And it dawned on me. I just prayed. I just really prayed. And I'm trying to keep doing it. I'm trying to keep doing it. Not just in waiting rooms because it continues all out here. There's so many people whose days on earth are numbered and so are ours friends i want us to understand prayer is not so much about duty and discipline as it is about desperation and dependence helplessness makes all the difference in the world so we can be an earnestly praying church a church that will see lost neighbors and lost loved ones saved and we have paul miller writes you don't need self-discipline to pray continuously you just need to be poor in spirit see your need like this little jerusalem church that has no political help no resources no strategies all they got is prayer to save their pastors pastor peter pastor james here it actually had arrested pastor james one of the disciples of jesus inner circle this is one of the main guys and it's right to i think to assume they also prayed for james Hard to imagine they didn't. Notice God didn't answer their prayer. Herod lays his hands on church members and decides, hmm, what will be the public response to an execution of one of their head guys? So he executes James with the sword. And it pleased the Jews, which is why he's like, oh, this is great. I'm going to arrest Peter too. Preparing for an encore. But he doesn't execute Peter right away. Notice it's Passover. Luke highlights Herod as a hypocrite. He's pretending to be God fearing before all the people. Oh, it's Passover. It's got to be holy time. Even as he's committing, commanding wicked atrocities, there's nothing new under the sun politically. That's another sermon. Back to prayer. Herod has just killed Pastor James. Imagine being them. God did not answer their prayer. How are we to think about this? How many of you can testify to being crushed by an unanswered prayer where you prayed your heart out? I have family members who are far from God, others who are victims of horrible injustice. I need Acts 12.5 today to see the example of this little church who, despite unanswered prayer, are still praying earnestly. Because I can get discouraged. Do you ever feel like I prayed wrong? (laughs) it comes to mind that God's up there uh, grading prayers? You know, is this intelligent enough? Articulate enough? Bible words? Is it pious and holy enough? Is this worthy of a reward? Sometimes I imagine God saying, "Is that Irvin on the line again?" <laughs> Gabriel, we change a channel to somebody south of the equator. I'm tired of this. It sounds silly, I know, but I find myself in doubting castle. When God doesn't answer my heartfelt prayers, I think I ask wrongly or I believe Satan's lie. God doesn't love you, Joel. He's not even listening to you. But friends, Acts 12.5 is God inviting us to come to him in earnest prayer. My question for you is, do you believe that? He's inviting you to come to him in earnest prayer. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're even on just the fence with this whole Christianity thing. You doubt God's love for you because of unanswered prayers. Maybe because of your situation. Friend, don't look to your situation or your unanswered prayers or life's injustices to know God's love for you. Where do I look, Joel? You look to the situation that unfolded at Calvary's cross. That's where you look to see God's love for you. Where God sent his own son to die horribly for your sins murdering his own son and the greatest injustice that has ever happened on human history jesus on the cross is how you can begin to make sense of your situation and your unanswered prayers by the way the father didn't answer his own son's earnest prayer praise be to god he did it because that was the best thing because it's actually the resurrection of jesus that's what becomes the catalyst for earnest prayer Think about it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which just happened, shaped the prayer meetings of the early church. Eternal life shaped their prayer life. I think it was D.A. Carson who said, uh, prayer meetings in the West began to die when our requests became more about keeping folks out of heaven than it was about saving folks from hell. Or in Peter's case, to set him free for the sake of the gospel that he could continue to preach the good news. God's mission to a dying world. After James died, I can imagine this group, actually, what what happened to them? (gasps) James, praise be to God, he's better off in glory, like Pastor Reeder right now. Praise be to God. He's better off, and I'm sure he's not missing one day on earth with me. Praise be to God. I think that's why Peter's literally asleep at the 11th hour. He's sawing logs. (sighs) Anyone here, would you be sleeping if one of your closest friends was just executed and you're next on the chopping block in the morning? This isn't Peter's first rodeo. He's been in jail a lot, actually, and he's been praying a lot. I actually recently talked with a dear saint who shared how she prays with tears every night for a loved one. And after she's done, she sleeps so good right afterwards. Maybe that's a word for some of us who struggle to sleep because of anxiety. We don't actually hand off our burdens to Jesus before we close our eyes or we take them back immediately after and don't say, sorry, Jesus, I took it back. Not Peter, who's sound asleep. So much so that boom, bright light in his eyes, he still doesn't wake up. The have has to come and whack him. By the way, that's the same exact word for the whack that Herod gets that kills him later on. Peter, finally, he finds himself set free when he wakes up. He's then unchained, walked past four squads of guards, he's through the gates. I mean, this is a better breakout than Alcatraz. This is awesome. After which we get this really comical scene. Here you have Peter, fresh out of prison, knocking at the door. And dear little Rhoda is so overjoyed, she runs off and forgets to let him in. Can you imagine being Peter right now? <laughs> He's wondering, why, why in God's world is it easier to break out of prison than it is to get into God's church? <laughs> Meanwhile, Rhoda, she's in the other room telling everybody the good news. Peter is free! Peter is free! And they hear this. Oh, and by the way, they're in the middle of a prayer meeting, verse 12. Peter is out, he's free, he's at the door. And they say, of course, Rhoda, praise be to God. That's what we're praying for. Why didn't you let him in? No, they don't. That isn't their response at all, is it? They've been asking God to save Peter's life. They have this smiling girl's report. They hear the knocking. But there's only two possibilities. Either the little girl's out of her mind... Or Peter's ghost, his angels here. Now, unless you're Roter or Peter, this is pretty funny, right? Luke wants us to laugh at ourselves when we lack faith in God, when we don't take in who it is we're really talking to. Am I right? Do we really take in who it is that we're talking to when we're bringing our situations before God, who we're inviting into our situations? We have access through Christ to petition the almighty maker of the entire cosmos. Think he can set people free? Far too often we act like Father God is too weak or too ungracious, or we think that people are far too powerful or their hearts are too hard. But church of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we have access to the almighty God, our heavenly Father, who reigns over everything, has total authority over every human heart. I stress this because our faith in God is 50% of the ingredients of prayer. Our faith in that God. Prayer is simply our coupling our helplessness to faith in Almighty God. Our helplessness plus faith in God equals earnest prayer. That's how simple it is. I think too often we focus on the act of praying, not who we're praying to. We're hoping our prayers themselves will change things. Here's the thing. You've probably heard people say prayer changes things. I know what they mean, but that's not right. The answer answer is not prayer changes things. Rather, God changes things through praying people. That's the right answer. It's actually been his plan all along. How he decided to grow his church, even today in an increasingly hostile culture. You realize he decided long before he would before I was ever born that he was going to reveal Christ's reign in northern Indiana in an old church building old bank building he decided that before I was even born he decided he was going to plant a church right here and I was born suddenly I had this desire in my heart me and Mike I remember sitting at a table with our wives we began to pray and look at this here we are this was God's plan and we have since seen multiple people set free to live for Jesus Christ here in this very place praise be to God Beloved, Luke is showing us that a church on its knees is a powerful force because it couples weak men to the Almighty God who is planning on bringing in His kingdom. Prayer is simply us catching up to what God has already ordained to come to pass. And we get a vision of real power at work in this age. Power against which men like Herod are no match. All their plans will come to nothing. It's actually what we see here. Embarrassed, Herod, you know, he kills these guards. He heads off to a place where he thinks he's still in control, can look good. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. They're sitting here begging him for peace. He dresses himself to the nines in some outfit that makes him look like a star. He delivers the greatest speech ever to this hungry audience. I mean, a speech that leaves all these people screaming and all, Wow! The voice of a God and not a man. It's funny, Luke does not even give us one little snippet of the greatest speech in Herod's history. There's no record. Not one word of this amazing speech. You know why? Luke's silence is his way of saying, Who cares? Who cares what Herod says? Luke is saying, Herod. You can talk up your political power, your economic power, your military power, your star power, your, your fan base, your pedigree. Who cares? By the way, that's why we can laugh at the news. Political season's coming. Maybe we can just turn off the social media instead of getting riled up by it and just pray. Because, <laughs> friends, earthly power is no match for earnest prayer. Look at Herod. Herod will forever be known as worm meat, (laughs) worm meat. Fixated on his glory, this man whose voice made all the people marvel, he's struck down by an angel and made into worm food. Just one more tyrant in a long list, including Stalin, including Lenin, who discovered there nothing before the living God. His impact fades, Herod's life and word amounts to nothing, nothing verse 24. But what word does? The word of God increased and multiplied. And Luke says this over and over and over again in Acts. He's saying, look at the unstoppable power of God's word that comes when saints are willing to pray earnestly. Don't fear, little church. Stay on your knees. Have no doubt you win because God wins. And God will continue to grow his church as his word goes forth. This is a good reminder for pastors pastors don't grow god's church the word of god in prayer grows the church so we as pastors need to be praying for the people that's my first point of application and that one's for me that one's for me we need pastors who pray for their people john owen says i believe that no man can have any evidence in his own soul that he does conscientiously perform any ministerial duty towards his flock who does not continually pray for them. Let him preach as much as he will, visit as much as he will, speak as much as he will, unless God does keep him up in a spirit of prayer in his closet and family for them, he can have no evidence that he does perform any other ministerial duty in due manner or that which he does is accepted with God. That one's for me got one for you we need people who pray for their pastors like we see here in acts 12 i'll quote another pastor instead of speaking for myself charles spurgeon said i bless god that i have a valiant core of friends who day and night besiege god's throne on my behalf i would beseech you again my brothers and sisters by our loving days that are past by all the hard fighting that we have had side by side with each other not to cease to pray for me now What shall I do if you cease to pray for me? Let me know the day when you give up praying for me, for then I must give up preaching, and I must cry, O God, take me home, for my work is done. Spurgeon understands what Paul does. Your prayers are necessary and powerful. Consider its supernatural power. It's unhindered by space or time. Prayer is our wartime walkie-talkie. Call in for air support as kingdoms collide pray for me because if things progress in our culture as they currently are 21st century stalinism's reign will be here if i dare preach the sexual ethics you find in the second half of romans 1 or 1st corinthians 6 or elsewhere in the bible i'll be labeled as far worse than a bigot i'll be labeled as an extremist you couldn't see me in jail of course it's my hope that God's going to look down and see just how bad off this culture is and he's going to rend the heavens and come down which is why my third and final point is we need seasons of protracted prayer for widespread revival and gospel awakening wouldn't you love to see a revival sweep across this land well join us for our joint prayer meeting at four o'clock today with our mother church or make plans to get together with other believers for times of serious prayer, earnest prayer. Let's pray together and let's pray big, big. Let's pray for the Spirit and for the Spirit to do what only the Spirit Almighty can do. Friends, let's not be like those who God will shake his head at and say you did not have because you did not ask. Let that not be us. You know, in closing, I'm convinced that Satan might not be that concerned about anything that we're doing except when we pray, because God has ordained this as a means to bring salvation to the world. And friends, God wants to do amazing things through us. I know that. You ever dreamed of being just part of something great, leaving this world better off after you leave? You and I, we've been dropped behind enemy lines in occupied territory, with the opportunity to set captives free by simply praying. Doesn't that just amaze you? It does, me. Jesus won the entire victory at the cross and at the tomb, and he could have simply dispatched of Satan his entire horde, demonic horde, with just his pinky finger, right? All gone, just like that. But instead, he chose to take weak folks like you, myself, folks who would not stand a chance on their own, And he gives us his Holy Spirit, which makes us the most powerful people on the planet. And he invites us to pray in the kingdom. Why did he do this? (laughs) Why did he privilege us to join in the greatest rescue mission in human history and crushing Satan's head? I don't really know other than somehow Jesus gets more glory when we join in on it. Isn't that amazing? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We come to you right now and we're thankful that you have made us soldiers of the cross. We confess that this pulling back of the veil reveals just how little we're actually taking in. We confess the dimness of our vision. We confess the weakness of our prayers. We confess that our hearts do not long enough, which is why we need you to pour out your spirit again in this day. We ask and pray that you will begin to do far more than ever we could ask or imagine as we get on our knees in prayer. So will you give us the wherewithal, the the desire, opportunities, and others who want to join us in constant, persistent prayer that we can see this church and other churches all throughout this community and throughout northern Indiana and Michigan that they may become houses of prayer. Father, our need is so great. You see all that's happening in our world right now and especially in this community. Father, will you make us house of prayer that we may in fact see many people come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, all to the glory of Christ and to the shame of Satan. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.